Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being on the show. Today, we are lucky to have with us Lauren Kickham. Lauren is an impact investor at Vulcan in Seattle. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. For sure. So tell us about this, um, this concept of impact investing. I know you put a lot of thought into it. And I know Mike and I could give a glib comment or two about what it is. But tell us, because you put a lot of thought into it. We'd love to hear your view. Sure. Well, impact investing is an opportunity to support a business that's trying to achieve more than just a financial return. They're looking to have some sort of big impact. Uh, it could be a social impact, environmental, some sort of governance impact. Um, and this is basically supporting a company to, to do that and to scale. So where do you, you're focused on this right now, Vulcan, where do you guys focus most of your efforts and time and energy and what parts of the world or what, you know, are the particular segments of the economy or kind of how do you, this is a lot of stuff you just said. Right? <laughs> Very cover, true. Like, basically that covers everything possibly. Very true. And, and um, you bring up a good point because with impact investing, um, the definition can often get people a little confused or not even confused, but um make it so big in scope because what does that not cover, right? right? And so I think an important part of it is is intentionality and what impact are you trying to see. And so within Vulcan and the work that I focus on, which is in sub-Saharan Africa, we're really looking at transforming lives of poor Africans that are underserved. And the way in which we do that is through infrastructure, enabling infrastructure. So looking at affordable access to electricity, uh, communications and the internet, um, ways to cook and, and heat your home that are sustainable and, and healthy, fresh water access, things like this that we we might hear, um, take for granted or have access to so easily, there, there are no public utilities in these really rural areas. And, and being able to invest in entrepreneurs that can meet that need and serve that population that has very little money uh, is a huge challenge. And so we, our focus is on finding those people that have creative, innovative solutions and funding them. That sounds really exciting. So how many, how many days on the ground have you spent? Has <laughs> it been a lot, I imagine? It, it is. It's a good number. Um, I mean, I travel over there or have about five to six times a year, okay. um, spend a couple of weeks on the ground, okay. um, mostly in eastern and southern Africa. Okay. Uh, we've now grown our team a bit, and so there's others that are there in a, in a longer periods of time, and so I might be traveling a little bit less, but still have spent a lot of time there, both in this job and then in previously my other um, work was focused in sub-Saharan Africa as well. So how do you, so this is a, I mean, if you were a traditional venture capital firm, let's just say like a VC in Seattle, right. you'd be like hustling all over town trying to find a good deal and worried you're going to somehow miss a good deal because you didn't learn about it or something. How do you find like what you're looking for in these countries? I mean, how do you like put a stake in the ground and announce yourself? Who do you, what agencies do you work with? How do you forage for what you're looking for? Great question. I mean, it's um, very similarly to venture capital investing in the U.S. or, or anywhere locally, it's about who you know um, on the ground. And, and so a large part of our success is driven by the networks that we have and the, and the time we spend in country. Um, and so 
one of the the women that I've hired, uh, Courtney and me, have a track record of of investing in Africa and um, and no different folks there. We rely upon similarly to here some accelerators, innovation hubs, um, networks that exist. There's like a, um, a Africa Venture Capital Association and. Depending on what sector you're in, there can be associations and groups, summits, conferences, all the, the same sort of things that happened here happening there um, that, that we can rely upon. So tell me about the, the, the focus on Africa. So Vulcan, for folks, I'm assuming most people listening know, but Vulcan is, is um, Paul Allen's company, and Paul Allen's one of the wealthiest men in the world. Is, is this focus on Africa or just focus on, on um, impact investing, something that, that he's driving that does he have a particular interest in? And, and why, why Africa? Is, is that just the place that has the biggest need at the moment? Or, or is there something more there? Oh, those are also great questions. Um, starting with why Africa, Paul personally has an interest in Africa. He loves the continent. Uh, he travels there a lot. He has a, a long history of investing in the continent in many different ways. And by investing in that sense, I mean also providing grants. So things like um, solving or helping to to tackle Ebola. Um, he made a $100 million commitment to that. Um, species conservation. He loves elephants and rhinos. We funded the Great Elephant Census a couple of years ago that, that's just wrapping up to count all the remaining elephants Savannah elephants in Africa. So he's got a personal, you know, personal heart interest in, in Africa. And, um, so the work that I do there comes from that. His philanthropy is a personal reflection of, um, of the change that he wants to enable in the world. He also obviously has other places that he's interested in the Pacific Northwest, um, Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Um, there are many places around the world that he's focused on. Um, with impact investing, this is a new approach within Vulcan. So it's something that I started um, in the years that I've been there. And we've started with this infrastructure focus in Africa. It's something that I have a background in and um, could bring the expertise on that. It is something we're looking to expand. Um, because it's it's a tool and it it's in addition to grant making and other forms of other ways you can have an impact and and this is one of the reasons I'm so excited about being at Vulcan is that we aren't um, we aren't forced into a box of doing one thing to to have impact so we don't we we can go beyond just making a grant we can make an investment we can support policy change. We can um, fund lawsuits. <laughs> um, we can we can do a lot of different things that sometimes lawsuits have really positive or negative social impacts, right? Depending on right. I mean, but obviously, many many lawsuits in America have opened the doors for wonderful freedoms. Yes, so. and this the one that we did support um, was actually for an environmental purpose um, around trying to enable the government to look at the co-leasing program that they had, the federal co-leasing program, um, and that their environmental impact assessment statement um, hadn't been revised since 1979, so didn't really include um, the implications of climate change since then. So it was, you know, you don't always want to go that path. It, it depends on the circumstance. But 
that aside, impact investing is is another tool in the toolkit, right? And so it it can be doesn't have to be just focused on Africa or on infrastructure. It can be in many other different um, applications. So other things, for example, that we're looking into um, ocean health. There, plastics in the ocean are a really big deal. If you can fund a grant to help clean up an ocean, you could also invest in waste management facilities to help keep plastics out of the ocean. You could invest in a material science uh, company that is changing the game in terms of the materials that that we see used on an everyday basis in, in plastic bottles or other things. So there's lots of different ways in, and it's it's the flexibility that we have to to figure out, okay, well, what is the best way in, the best way to achieving the impact that we want to see on the ground? Yeah, that's really nice. And is the is the focus on impact and uh, sustainable like businesses and profit, or is it is it more about the impact or one one or the other? Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, which which comes first? Yeah, or or like you know, or or if if profit comes second, then you know how far how far second. Assuming, well, assuming yeah. that's the case, <laughs> the, well, you, you kind of have to have both, right? And this is this is where, um, if you have a sustainable business and one that's thriving and and growing, you can have more impact. They're correlated. You, you if you're you know if you don't have a financial return or the business isn't sustainable, you're not going to be able to achieve the impact you're looking to achieve through that business. So they're hand in hand. Um, that we, makes sense. Yeah, it seems like it's kind of like starting a fire or something like that. If if you don't, if you start it and it doesn't go anywhere, then it just doesn't spread. But you, you kind of I imagine you want to be the seed of something that grows beyond what you've made happen. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's also something great of the through investment you can leverage your capital um, by getting others to come in, um, and also you know consumers are sharing in the success of a business. Um, the industries in w- that are supporting it, these are all uh, players that are having an impact together when they, they help a business grow in that way. Hmm. So tell us a little bit how about how you got to where you are. I mean, so how did you get into this space and how did you end up at Vulcan? I was, I was a management consultant a number of years ago, and I had a close friend that had joined the company, and she used to work for the World Bank. And we were talking one day about about our work, a management consulting work, and I I had said to her, man, I really wish there was a way that I could do this work for a purpose, and and a purpose that really resonated with me. Um, she's like, oh yeah, you can for sure. You can you can do this for nonprofits or the the nonprofit world. And that kind of blew my mind. I had grown up thinking that, that nonprofits were kind of really squishy and fuzzy and doing amazing work, but not, not, um, driven by the same sort of rigor and analysis and, um, frameworks that I had developed in, in my management consulting days. And she's like, Oh no, you're, you're totally wrong. And here's a couple of people you should talk to. And that sent me on a path. I, in a one-year period, I had uh, kind of informational interviews with 84 different people, and I still have the spreadsheet, which I'm, I look back on and think, oh my god, I, I don't know how all these people spoke with me, um, but I'm very grateful for their time. Um, 
And from that formed a view that actually there's so much overlap between um, business and doing good. And so it sent me on this path. Um, after, after the management consulting firm, I left. I worked for a group called Roberts Enterprise Development Fund, and it was started by George Roberts of KKR. And he was looking at how you can solve homelessness in the Bay Area through something that he knew very well, which was business. And he saw that the way to help people off the streets in San Francisco was by giving them a job. So how could we fund the businesses that would employ these people to get them, get them into a, a new quality of life? Right. So we funded those businesses. Um, they're kind of transitional workforce development type businesses. And, um, and I loved it. It was incredibly interesting. And, um, from there, I went to over to Oxford uh, to study within their social enterprise um, management or social enterprise MBA program. And um, after that was in London, working for two different investment funds um, focused on investment in sub-Saharan Africa, infrastructure development, and smallholder agriculture. From there, I, um, I came to Seattle and and met Steve Hall, who's the managing director for our um, VC team within Vulcan. I was introduced to him by a woman that I went to business school with who was starting and has started a great company in Tanzania called Off-Grid Electric, which is providing electricity as a service to these underserved uh, rural poor communities in Tanzania. And she said... Lauren, I just met this super cool guy, um, Steve Hall, and you should talk to him. He's doing the sort of stuff you're interested in. And I did, and um, and the rest is kind of history. started working for him and then um, stepped into the philanthropy team to try and bridge the gap between um, traditional philanthropy and grant making and investing. So continuing to find that middle ground between having an impact and and supporting businesses. So this seems like an area where probably there's been a lot of really um, refined thought given as to sort of best practices. I mean, has there been, or is it such a fresh field that there hasn't yet been? I mean, like best practices and like, you know, impact investing or how to think about it, how to do it, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, this, this is relatively new in a way, but maybe it's not relatively new. Maybe it's a lot of the old yeah. regurgitated <laughs> ways that are different. And we, we talk about differently than last generation or something. I, I don't know. I'm curious. That's a great question. It, the The term impact investing is relatively new, so maybe the last eight or ten years or so. Um, but people were doing this beforehand. They might not have called it impact investing, though. Right. Um, like RedF, actually, the Roberts Enterprise Development Fund had been around before this term came to be, and right. groups like Calvert um, and others. And... And I think that there's always been folks that have been trying to think innovatively about how you drive impact. Um, and, and in some cases, people can argue that just investing in any company might have, have an impact in a positive way. You, you create jobs. Um, you help grow an economy. That, that brings capital into, to cities and, and gives people opportunity. So, I, it's 
I think a lot of focus has been on the actual term, who's in and who's out. Like, are you making impact investing or are you? I think the importance of it is actually just managing your capital in a way to achieve more than just a financial return. Like, how can you do the most possible with your money? And I think that that, that shades of gray within there, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's about mindfulness and, and responsibility with the decisions that you make and knowing that, that you could do some really amazing things with yeah. it. So I'm going to take kind of a, a counter position and it's going to make me sound kind of heartless. So I'm just taking it as like a <laughs> bit of a thought, thought experiment, but like, so uh, in terms of making an impact, I kind of wonder if when I think about, and, and this may be a very un, uneducated and uninformed opinion about, about, you know, some of these poor countries, but I'm assuming that in these poor countries where things are hard, there's less money and there's not, you know, they don't have as much money to spend on things. And I wonder if, you know, why is investing in those in those populations directly as a as a business investment for the impact sake somehow better than than finding the optimum investment anywhere in the world that maybe doesn't have an impact uh, but maybe ge- generates the most profit and then taking that profit and donating it to people in those countries? Have you guys thought about that much? And, and it's a kind of a I mean, I applaud what you're doing. I'm not trying to say that it's the wrong approach by any means, but I'm just trying to think it through. And I'm wondering if, you know, if you're, if you're investing money in a specific location where there isn't as much money for consumers to spend, I wonder if maybe that's maybe not the optimal way to, to, um, to generate profit and then use that profit for impact. That's, it is a, a, it's actually a question that comes up a lot. And I think it's a really important question to address. And there's, there's two parts to it. Um, one is I think of this as as an and, not an or. So I think if you can continue to grow your investments and your returns so that you have more money to donate or give from a philanthropic perspective, that's great and that's needed. The There are situations where investment doesn't make sense. These are often like short-term crises or where services don't have a market or isn't going to have a market that, that it can be based upon. Um, things like the Ebola crisis or or people that are in really dire need that, that just don't have that capital right now. The thing is that, that people in these poor areas are actually spending a lot of money on these services. So someone in, in a rural area in Africa spends, you know, six to nine dollars per unit of energy, um, currently because they're buying kerosene in these really small packets or mm. they're buying batteries. And that's what they're using to get some really poor quality lighter cooking source. And so when you think about the unit um, dollar per unit that we pay here in the U.S., you're looking at maybe like 12 cents a kilowatt hour or less. So the difference between what people are paying here versus there per unit of energy is shocking. So I see. I see. So it's kind of like even so you, you take the scale of the economy and the amount of money that each individual has to spend. And then you look at, at you know, the, it's underserved. So there's all kinds of inefficiencies that maybe haven't been been. Um, you know, handled properly. So, so there's like lots of low hanging fruit and way of ways to like create efficiency and generate value for the customers and exactly. that maybe doesn't exist here. 
Exactly. So if I can provide a reliable, clean energy source to these people in Africa for $3 a kilowatt hour, then you know what? That's a win for everyone um, because that's making it it's cheaper for them. They, it's freaking up cash for other, other things. Um, and it's something that I, I can have a return and invest it in other areas for more impact. And the other point also is that say I did make a ton of money and I, I, I bought, let's say a hundred thousand solar lanterns that I donated to a, a, a population, a community in Africa. Hundred thousand is a lot. Those communities. The communities are cut a bit smaller, but anyway, um, that's great for two years, right? And then when those solar lanterns break, what do those people do? Are there technicians there that can fix them? Are there parts that are readily available? New batteries they can buy? No. Um, right, but right. if I give, if I can fund a local entrepreneur, and that's important as well, is really finding local partners. And and I take that $100,000 and I invest it in the company and they're able to offer a service for at a better price and a better quality product than what those people currently are paying. Then, you know, 10 years from now, that company, company is hopefully still around and they're there to provide the maintenance on the products. They're there to to source new parts and to provide education. So it's finding that sustainable model um, and building from that. Yeah, that makes that makes great sense. Great, terrific, terrific answer. Yeah, you know, this, this just reminds me a lot about this the philosophy of sort of you know our political economic systems in general, right? And this is all this all harkens back to like you know stuff you know, stuff we read in college or something. Adam Smith and the Invisible Hand, and, right? Invisible Hand. I mean, I, you know, it's all very like. Um, but you know, as a practical matter, you're actually like on the ground in these communities. You're seeing things. You're seeing things work. Right, so that's pretty amazing. Are you guys like, collecting a bunch of data to publish somewhere along the way too to help the rest of the world see that? Yes, actually, um, it makes me think of one of our projects. So, uh, in we funded ten solar microgrids in Kenya, ranging between one and a half kilowatts up to ten, all in really remote areas, you know, nowhere near the grid, and we built them and and own and manage them through a local partner called Steamico. And the purpose of that project was really to understand the commercial model to providing decentralized energy to these rural areas. And the whole point of that project was to not only prove that model, but to get the information out there so that others would come in. It was, it was all about de-risking that venture. And, and we're finding now it's been two years since those been running, they've been running and, and we've got a range within that, you know, some that, aren't breaking even and some that are, that are quite um, doing quite well. And so understanding what the drivers are, what the differences are, where the kind of where the, the bottom line is in terms of um, number of customers you have to have on a grid to be profitable, what the tariff looks like, what that operating model looks like so that, that we know where, where to make investments and where you need, donations where you do need grants. I mean, some cases you're just, there isn't going to be a sustainable model, which is fine, but being able to provide that sort of data allows you to set expectations accordingly and be able to locate those communities that just, that just need a grant. And that's just how it's going to, how it's, how it's going to be best served. Right. Right. 
So how common right now is the smartphone in these countries that you visit? (laughs) (laughs) It's growing. Um, You know, we're seeing smartphones drop in price, you know, down to $50. Hopefully we'll get under that as well. We're seeing some, some there. It's a huge, it will be a huge driver to access to markets and information. I mean, only uh, 10% of Africans have access to the internet. Um, so they're, they're disconnected in a lot of ways. The more, cheaper the smartphones, um, the better able people will be able to connect and, and have access to information and, and all that good stuff. Right. And fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It well, feels like access to the internet might be one of those perfect, uh, impact investments just because it's such a fundamental thing for people to connect. It's almost like building a road to a place that doesn't have a road. Um, but I, I imagine ISP in those countries could also be a, a pretty viable and profitable business. Um, yeah, that, we made an investment in a wireless internet service provider, um, in rural Kenya as well called Mawingu. Actually, it's, um, has relevance to Seattle. It was a co-investment with Microsoft and uh, Microsoft about about four or so years ago gave a grant through their for Africa program to Moingu to, to build a demonstration network to basically prove the technology um, of reaching these rural communities. And it worked. And then, and then we both came in to make, to help support that business to basically prove a commercial model and scale and they're about a year in um, on that, and they've got thousands of customers, and they're serving those customers for two to three dollars a month. Which I'm about to move, and I'm I'm looking at my options in terms of Comcast versus CenturyLink, <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me right now? I just need Mawingu here. <laughs> I'd love to hear like what happens when someone in in sub-Saharan Africa calls their two dollar a month ISP and tries to cancel. And if they if they have to deal with the same the same <laughs> exactly. like uh, this customer service uh, scenario that we do here in America, there it's, it's pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's disheartening <laughs> here to say the least. It's kind of my one thing I certainly hate about moving. But interesting. Well, so um, so big big projects. I mean, these are. I mean, how like your typical size range for these must be pretty. I mean, these are pretty sizable. Co- Investments, or how 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 small do the investments go? Uh, there, it's we're in the seed stage, okay. Series A level, so we're okay. looking at you know two hundred fifty, five hundred thousand oh, wow. dollars okay. up to a you know million or so, um, maybe a little bit more. Okay. Uh, part of part of what um, Paul is interested in this in this case is finding those entrepreneurs early and helping them get going, like really being someone that um, can identify the talent and the opportunity and take the risk being early. So um, that's what, that's what we do. Hopefully these or the, the entrepreneurs we look at usually are post some proof of concept or you see some traction or um, an ability to touch and feel that product and then really helping them scale um, get to a sustainable business model that can can go from there. Well, so was was Moinga? I mean, was that comparable in size? To that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, all right. Interesting. Well, that's really fun. I uh, yeah, you must love it. It must be a really fun fun job. It is. It's a really cool job. I mean, it's um a unique place to work. Where, as we were talking about in the beginning, it's about finding the entrepreneurs that that have the potential for really significant change right. and not that I'm not concerned about these 
businesses failing. <laughs> like obviously, that's that's never uh, an outcome we're looking for. But um, we can take big risks and and are expected to. And so while the dollar sizes might be small relative to other big ventures that that Paul has going on, it's big in terms of potential impact and and in solving some of these crazy problems that that are just in Africa huge. Yeah. Well, I'd love to see. I mean, I I know it's out there, but you'll have to guide me to it or something. There's got to have been some really good things written about some of the like how these projects, you know, measurements, how they, you know, how they were put together, how, the impacts they had. Yeah. There's got to be some great studies on that. I mean, in a general level, there's there is there's a group called GIN, which is the Global Impact Investing Network. Okay. A lot of information there. I mean, I have. I mean, I I, I could send you some stuff yeah. on Earth on the investments we've made. Um, there's a growing growing group of people that are interested this in this. There's a social capital market conference each year um, in usually in San Francisco. Um, Rockefeller. It's big in this. Right. So we still see it, though, as mostly just the, the sort of the place where, I mean, sort of maybe some portion of excess capital gets deployed, but it's still, it, I mean, it's still very much a minority overall of general investment dollars available. It is. And this is where, coming back to as well, that, that gray space um, of the spectrum, really. Right. I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of managing endowments in a in a mission investing related lens. So that's actually, what I mean by that is how can you just shift that 95% of your endowment that you invest for financial returns to be just a little bit more environmental social governance focused. Right. Um, there's there's huge opportunities there that make a lot of sense I think because if you're if you're taking five percent and the ninety five five percent is is actually um, law IRS law you you have to spend five percent of your endowment every year so if you're putting five percent towards some sort of impact but then ninety five percent of it could potentially be negating all the the work that you're doing because it's just such big dollars and in, in big companies then um, you know there's a question there of the the net impact you might be having. So I think even though potentially small community right now that's growing, there's a, there's a lot within there that can be done. Yeah. And Mike, I mean, I, what I think what Lauren's referring to is sort of the private foundation, you know, yeah. excise taxes, which kick in if there's not like distributions. I've always thought that, um, and this is beyond the sort of reach of the show today, but I always thought that some of those like limitations that were built into the law actually sort of, like hurt more than they help. I mean, the idea behind them was, well, we can't let somebody who's really wealthy put a bunch of money into a charity and get a deduction for it unless the charity spends out a lot of that money every year or some minimal amount of that money every year. Yeah. And, and that make, I mean, there's some logic to that um, view from that lens. Definitely. But I've also thought sometimes that that minimum distribution requirement sort of like Maybe force some bad decisions or force speed, just get money out to avoid the yeah. excess tax, excess tax. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's the right. All these legal constructs we have in the United States kind of need to be updated. I mean, even just Great. now we're, we're starting to form like Washington or uh, state law corporations, which allow you to 
you know, on a sale of the business, not just necessarily sell to the highest dollar bidder, right? We're, that's just an evolution in the United States in the last, you know, half a dozen or dozen years or something. So anyway, super fun to have had you on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been fun to, to talk this morning. Yeah, it's been super fun. Any, any party thoughts for us? Go Seahawks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go Seahawks for sure. For sure. Yeah, Mike, any thoughts? Yeah, this is really interesting stuff. I'm glad you were on the show. And um, is there any place, I mean, I know that you guys, uh, do you have a place where people can find out more about what Vulcan's up to? Um, is there an easy way or a good place to direct people if they want to learn more? Yes, the Vulcan website, there's there's a um, tab on there for Vulcan Impact Investing. And you can, you can find that or just Google Vulcan Impact Investing um, and my name and, and I'll pop up. There's a, there's a page on us and you can follow links to the companies that we're working with and the things that we're up to. And, um, we'll have a white paper out this summer on those lessons learned from the microgrids, um, in Kenya and, and I'm sure more to come this year. That's great. Lauren, thanks for being on. Um, and thanks everyone else for listening when we'll see you all next week.